Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what are we going to do with the Feast of the Ascension, brothers and sisters? What are we going to do with the Feast of the Ascension? We start a new series called Outward Bound this morning. And it's there in your text. Did you hear it? From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the Holy Spirit falls and bursts the church at Pentecost, which is coming soon to a theater near you in our preaching series, when the Holy Spirit falls on the church, it unleashes what the scientists call a centrifugal force. A centrifugal force is from the center inevitably outwards. And the gospel goes out to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. If the gospel really falls, if the spirit really comes, it goes to the whole world because our God is a global God. So we're starting a whole new series called Outward Bound about the spirit falling on the church and taking the gospel for the world, from the Father to the world. Are you all with me? So I want to look at the ascension this morning, which is a great big challenge for somebody like me because it's all about what to leave out. I mean, this is a gargantuan subject. It's one of the principal feasts of the church year. So I want to go Stephen Covey this morning. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, okay? So I'm going to ask two questions. You ready? Really, really basic questions, okay? Why is the ascension important, number one? And number two, what does it mean? that sound like okay okay so why is it important and what does it mean all right so first of all why is it important number one it's important because it's one of the principal feasts of the church year now just for a second just going to do a little teaching uh not the same as preaching teaching is an appeal to the mind uh to to get you to learn information but there's seven principal feasts of the church and you know them all because they go in order as the church year unfolds right so you go christmas and then you go epiphany and then you get easter and then you get ascension and then you get pentecost and you get trinity sunday and you get all saints day right but notice that ascension is one of the seven so if i drop you into switzerland this past week it's actually a national holiday And one of the early service participants came out and told me about a time when he and his wife were in Sicily and just the incredible importance of the ascension in the, in the country of Sicily. He was describing the, the people holding the, the figure of Jesus ascending into heaven in this giant parade that was happening in Sicily. That's the seriousness with which other Christians in other parts of the world take the ascension. Most North Americans aren't even in church, much less thinking about the ascension. But actually, it's, it's one of the seven most important days of the year as far as the church calendar. That's number one. Number two is you confess it in the creed, and it's actually in both creeds. It's in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, so there's no escape if you do morning prayer or if you do Eucharist. You're stuck. You get, you get the ascension, right? So, right? For, on the third day, he was raised again, right? Right? By the power of the Holy Spirit for us and for our salvation, he came down, right? And then it says, and he ascended to, to the right hand of the Father where he sits, right? Which is the session. So the, the key idea is that the ascension is something that the early church put in the most core confession of the faith to remind us every week that it's one of the places where we kind of anchor ourselves as Christians. So one of the seven fe- principal feast days, one of the things that's in the creed that we say every week, must be important if we say it every week. All right, third reason is that it's burned into the 
minds of the earliest apostles. And that's where we find ourselves today. And I want to take a look at this passage for just a moment. I want you to think about it. Why is the ascension so important to the early Christians? Both at the end of Luke in chapter 24 that you had read to you and at the beginning of Acts, which is the second volume of Luke. Did you catch the way he began his book in the first book, O Theophilus? That is to say in Luke, which he concluded with the ascension. He now begins Acts and he tells us the ascension again. And the portrayal of the apostles is absolutely crucial. They are portrayed as heavenly stargazers. And at one level, at a pastoral level, I want you to be sympathetic to them. This departure is different than Good Friday, which leads to Easter, which leads to the resurrection appearances. That departure involved Jesus returning and appearing multiple times. But it's very clear that this departure is different than that departure. And this departure is final. He's going to leave and they've got to wait for the spirit. And Luke is at great pains to describe the degree to which they really don't want him to go. So what it says in the text, just look at your text for a second in verse 10, I am. It's very hard to get this across in English because it's a triple superlative, but I'm going to try. So it goes like this. While they were looking up, he went up into heaven as he went up. Did you catch it? So they're looking up. He's going up, up. It's a triple superlative. It's like extracalifragilisticexpialidocious. So, so the point is, the one thing that you got is they're craning their necks and they're still looking up, right? If you, if you see any medieval art, and it's fun sometimes to check this out, all you see is the feet in a lot of these portrayals, and that's it. There's just feet, and it's going up, and they're just like, no. He's the most significant person that's ever lived. He's the most significant person in their life, and he's leaving. They don't like it. And the question from the two heavenly visitors is a rebuke to them. But what I want you to see is the reason the rebuke is so strong is you got to see at a pastoral level why they're doing what they're doing. They care about him so much they don't want him to leave. Isn't that the way it always is when somebody who's close to you leaves and dies? It's always very significant. You don't want them to go. It's always something that you remember. Well, let me tell you, this is something they remembered. It was burned into the core. They will never forget this moment. He was leaving. They were looking up and he left up, up into the sky. And what is said is indispensable. This Jesus who left will come back in the same way. So it's crucial because it's in the creeds. It's one of the seven principal feasts. And it's one of the most important events in the life of the earliest and most significant Christian leaders. You all with me so far? All right. Now, second, who cares? Why does it matter? Well, I appreciate you asking the question. I'm going to give two answers. The first is, it's the period at the end of the sentence of salvation. So one of the ways you can think about this, brothers and sisters, is John's gospel. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. And you can think about that statement as a sentence without a period. Now, remember, you've heard me on this before. Mom was an English teacher, right? I grew up in a house with stories and words and stories being read on records in the background and all sorts of things about grammar and English were hammered into me as a young boy. One of which is you don't have a sentence if you don't have a punctuation mark at the end of the sentence. I don't care if you have the subject right and the verb right and the object right and the adverb right. If you don't have an exclamation point or a question mark or a period, it's still not a sentence. Make sure to write full sentences, Kendall. Okay, okay, got it, mom, got it. But the point is it it works in a certain way. And what you have to realize about the ascension and the reason it's so significant is 
It is the final act of God's salvific activity that completes his work of salvation on our behalf. It is our assurance as Christians that all that has done for our life and our salvation has been done, period, end of sentence. It's completed. We can completely trust it. We have nothing to add to the equation. He's done it all. That's the significance. Now, I hope you'll agree with me that the more important something is that you do, the more devastating it is when you don't quite do it, right? So if you don't do your homework on a particular day, usually a teacher isn't particularly happy, right? But if you don't quite do a marriage, that's really not so good. And we actually don't have a category for almost married. They got really close, you know, they, they did the uh, engagement invitations and they, they talked to a lot of their friends and they planned a banquet and all that. St- and they got the minister and they got the church. It's, it, it doesn't count. I did a doctorate in, in, in Europe. And if you do a doctorate in Europe, basically you, you spend three or four years researching a book and you write the book and then two people read the book. And if they like the book, you pass. And if they don't like the book, you don't. And in Oxford, you sit a a sword's length across from your two examiners who are at a desk. And it's a sword's length because in medieval period, every once in a while, they had got in sword fights because people didn't like the way that the examiners responded. But you've got these two people who your, your life is literally in their hands. So the point is, do you actually think that I came sort of prepared? Or 90% prepared, as if 99% prepared. I mean, I I put my life on the line for this thing, right? So I don't thank my wife for being 85% faithful, right? It just, it just isn't, that that just isn't quite it, right? You don't thank the newspaper delivery for five out of seven days. The mortgage company doesn't say, you know, 11 out of 12 months last year and the mortgage payments wasn't bad, right? So the more important the event, the more important it is that you got to complete it. Uh, just as a quick aside, and I'm not doing this because it's a paid promotion, but if you get a chance, uh, definitely get a chance. Go, go see on Netflix uh, the new film called Operation Mincemeat, which is a true story about the most significant subterfuge in the history of subterfuges, which is a true story about the Second World War, starring Col- Colin Firth, whom we love, and Matthew McFadden. And yes, it's a great movie, but one of the things about the movie that makes it so significant is so much rides on the significance of what they're trying to do. If it works, it's incredible. Incredible, and the war goes forward. If it doesn't work, it's a disaster, and thousands and thousands of soldiers will die. So if they don't quite get it right, the cost is enormous, and you feel it as you're watching the movie. So the point is, everything that was necessary, there's no codicil, there's no small print at the end of the contract. You are a forgiven sinner. Let me give you three images from the Old Testament just so that we all stay together. I will remember their sins no more, says the Lord in Jeremiah. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, Psalm 103. And one of my own personal favorites, Isaiah 38. You have cast all my sins behind your back. All my sins behind your back. Everything is gone. It's, it's as if it isn't there. It's never held against us. So when you come to communion this morning, brothers and sisters, how do you come? What do you bring in your hands? Your resume? Your income? Your genetic code? None of that's going to get you qualified. You don't have anything to contribute to your salvation except the sin from which you need to be delivered. And me too. And the reason we know that is because of the ascension. Because he's done it all.
All right, so the first thing is Jesus has done it all. Now I'm going to take a page from Chris and have you say it back to me. Jesus did it all. All right, good. We're good. We're good. Okay, number two. There's a second thing about this text that's crucial. It's not just that Jesus did it all, absolutely everything. Nothing has been left out. We're completely forgiven. The slate is completely wiped clean. We're 100% right with God and righteous. And when Jesus sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. It's It's an amazing gospel. It's amazing grace. It's amazing love. But there's something else that's here, and that is... When they have this heavenly stargazing experience and they get this rebuke, the significance of the event is not just how much it burns into their consciousness, but it's how much they remember the rebuke and what is said in the rebuke. So look at your text and think about it. The ascension is crucial for the early church because because of the ascension, they believe in the second coming. Let me say that again. Because of the ascension, they believe in the second coming. Look at what it says. This Jesus, when of Galilee, why are you looking up there? You, you do understand that this is a portrayal of us, right? They, they asked the wrong question. Did you catch that? Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? That's verse 6. That's the wrong question. Calvin says there are as many mistakes in that question as there are words. That's another, that's another sermon for another time. So they're asking the wrong question. They're also looking in the wrong place which is why the rebuke happens, right? They're looking in the wrong place. That's you and me. We ask the wrong questions. We're looking in the wrong place. We need help. We need salvation. We need the Lord. This Jesus who is taken up from you in heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go. Question, how did he leave? Answer, personally, visibly, gloriously, suddenly. How will he return? Personally, visibly, suddenly, gloriously. How do they know? Because they saw it. And the the, the word of rebuke is, you will never forget this event. This event is just like that event. Which means what? It means the early church always lived with this reality. He who came is he who is coming. They lived every day with the reality that Jesus Christ's second coming was something that was always possible on that day when they got up in the morning. As the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, last verse, if you're taking notes, I want you to take it down. The church is described, and I quote, as eagerly waiting for him. And Trey and I didn't talk, but did you notice the hymn we sang? He's coming near to wipe away every tear. We just sang it. That's to be our expectation. You do know that if I dropped you anywhere else in the world in Christian circles, most of the places, Africa, South Africa, South America, or something like that, those people really have a tangible daily belief in the second coming of Jesus, and most of us in the West don't. Somebody once asked John Wesley what he would do. Jesus came that afternoon, and he said, plant a tree. I always like that story. What he meant by that is... I would do what I was planning to do anyway because I always think of this day as the last day I might be living. That's what he meant. He was going to plant a tree because that's what he planned. If it was the next day, he might not be planting a tree. He might have been saying a prayer with his grandson or something. But the point is he lived every day in the light of the second coming of Jesus. So they believe that Jesus is coming again and they live between the first coming and the second coming. And do you see the significance for the church of this rebuke. I hope you do. It's incredibly important that you see the doctrine of the church that's in this passage. It's magnificent and it's twofold. The first thing you need to see, look at the first verse, brothers and sisters. In the first book, I have dealt with all Jesus began to do and to teach. You got to think about that for a second. That's a reference to Luke. So Luke is about what Jesus began to do and to teach. That's a burr 
Remember, I tell you all the time, when you read the Bible, the Bible does not yield its truths to inattentive readers. You've got to learn to be an active reader. You've got to ask questions. So it shouldn't say what he began to do and to teach. It should say what he taught and did. It should be past tense. It's not past tense. It's present tense. What he began to do and to teach in Luke is what he continues to do and to teach in Acts, which means what? It means this. The ascended Lord, through the power of the Spirit, works in the church right now, continues to work through you and through me. We are the hands and the body of Christ in the world right now. That's who we are. The ascended Christ didn't stop working at the moment of the resurrection. He didn't stop working at the moment of the ascension. He continues to reign. He continues to work. How? Through the church. Wow. That's a big deal. But also, did you notice that the core of the church's life is not to be heavenly stargazers? There's a rebuke here. It's very simply summarized. Jesus has come, and Jesus must go, and in the meantime, the Spirit must come, and you must go. In other words, your heart must be inflamed with mission to take my message to the world. Don't watch people watching a tennis match. Have you ever thought about that? It's nuts. It's just all wrong. They're not, they're looking in the wrong place. Jesus said in John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So don't look up there. Realize, wait for the promise of the Father, wait for the Spirit to fall, and when the Spirit falls, just like Jesus came and Jesus went, the Spirit falls, and you've got to go to the world, which is where we get Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the rest of our preaching series all summer long. Yay! Right? So coming attractions. Here's John Stott in his wonderful book on Acts. The remedy for unprofitable spiritual stargazing lies in a Christian theology of history. First, Jesus ascended into heaven. Second, the Holy Spirit came. Thirdly, the church goes out to witness. Fourthly, Jesus will come back. Whenever we forget one of these events or put them in the wrong sequence, confusion reigns. We need to remember especially that between the ascension and the parousia, between the the first coming of Jesus and the ascension and the second coming of Jesus, the disappearance and the reappearance of Jesus, there stretches a period of unknown length which is to be filled with the church's worldwide spirit-empowered witness to him. We need to hear the implied message of the angels. You have seen him go. You will see him come. Between that going and coming, there is another. The Spirit must come and you must go into the world for Christ. Boom. Which means what? If the first point is Jesus did it all, the second point is this. The early Christians lived every day believing that Jesus Christ is Lord now. That is Ascension Day Christianity. He is the ascended Lord now. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it. You may not be able to fully explain it. But the early church believed that Jesus Christ is Lord now. Why? Because they believed in the ascension. Because he's up there reigning at God's right hand. And that's what kings do. They reign. So when we pray every day, Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, we pray to the reigning king, for his kingdom to come on earth as he continues to reign. Here's Tom Wright speaking about the ascension. The belief that Jesus was already reigning was woven into Christianity from the first. We have to come and think differently about Christianity in the modern era. People think that somehow the difficulty of Christianity is, and I quote, that somehow we have to believe in the teeth of scientific evidence. But this misses the point, says Tom Wright. The real core of Christianity is giving allegiance to Jesus as Lord, listen, 
in the teeth of the claims of earthly rulers, systems, and philosophies that claim that they are Lord. Jesus is Lord, curious Christos, is the earliest confession of the Christian church. You had to say that before you were baptized. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you said Jesus Christ is Lord, that meant all sorts of other people and things weren't Lord, like Caesar. Ascension Day Christianity wasn't something you had to wait for, says Tom Wright, until the end of time. Being a Christian was always about living by faith in Jesus as a sovereign Lord in a world that didn't look much like he was in charge. Exactly. Which means what? It means this. It means our heritage as Christians, the shoulders of the Christians on whose, the shoulders of those who came before us, on which we now this morning stand, are people like Polycarp. Do you know about Polycarp? The early bishop of Smyrna? If you don't, you need to. Just one example from history, if I can, of Ascension Day Christianity. So Polycarp was a, was a bishop in Smyrna, and the early Christians were living in a very hostile environment, and the Romans were very clear. Caesar is Lord, and Jesus isn't Lord. And so they said to Polycarp that he had to swear that Caesar was Lord. And Polycarp said, not on your life. So they took Polycarp into the Colosseum in Rome in the second century. And here's the description from eyewitnesses. As he was entering into the stadium, this is somebody who sat at the feet of the Apostle John. So we're only really like two generations after the New Testament. Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who spoke to him. But those of us who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. So he's in a coliseum with non-Christians who have been invited to watch the spectacle of this guy's death. On confessing who he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ. Have respect to thy old age, the man says. He was 86 years old. He said, look, do yourself a favor, guy. Just relax. You're almost dead anyway. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of all the wicked in the stadium and waving his hand toward them with groans, looked up to heaven and said, away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urged him, saying, swear and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. And Polycarp declared, I can never get through this without crying. Eighty and six years I have served my Lord and King, and he has never done me any wrong. Why will I now blaspheme my Lord and King? And they burned him alive. And here's the question. Why in the world would someone do something like that? It's completely idiotic and nonsensical at a rational level, unless, unless you actually believe at that moment when you're being burned to death in front of a coliseum of people at the hostile feet of Caesar, that Jesus Christ really still is Lord which of course he is. And how does he know that? Because the ascension faith of John and the other apostles came to him and he staked his life on it. So the point is, no matter what the situation, Jesus Christ is Lord, which means what? It means Jesus Christ reigns as Lord now. That's my second point. Go ahead, say it back to me. Jesus is Lord now. There we go. We're, we're grooving. Okay, those are my two points. Now I'm going to go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. All right, so what I want to give you in conclusion in terms of the ascension is this. First of all, there's something for us to know. There's something for us to know. 
The Lord needs confident Christians. The whole book of Hebrews is written to a Christian community who are timid. They're struggling to be confident in prayer because they're so aware of their sinfulness. I always think of uh, Maggie Thatcher in the first Gulf War. So we're back in the early 90s, as you remember. But she said at one point to George Bush Sr., she said, George, don't let your knees go wobbly on you now. If you remember, right? And, and so the, the whole, you can think of the whole book of Hebrews is written to a, a bunch of wobbly need early Christians. And the, the point is they know the gospel. Why are they wobbly need? Because if you look to yourself, it's hard to believe that you belong in the kingdom of God. Have you noticed? If you actually look in the mirror and take yourself seriously, you sit with the people in our story this morning, asking all the wrong questions, looking at all the wrong places. Hello. But if you really understand that Jesus did it all, like I said, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was Luther's great discovery. Luther absolutely discovered the reality that Jesus has done it all, which means no matter what the situation, every day when you get up in the morning, you've got to say to yourself, I am a child of the king. I am a child of the king. How do I know that? Because Jesus died for me. He went all the way back to heaven and ascended and did all that is necessary for me so I can walk with my head held high and my shoulders up because I am a child of the king. And I know enough to know about life that one of Satan's most impressive tools is discouragement. Have you noticed? You do know the story of Satan's garage sale, do you? Where the, where the demon is kind of, they got all the tools and the, there's one over there. It says not for sale. And the demon finally persuades Satan to tell him what's over. It's discouragement. He said, no, I don't, I don't sell that tool. That's the one that works when nothing else does. As long as I can get in there and get you to feel like you don't have anything to contribute to God and you're not really a child of God, you can't do anything. So the first message is when we say your sins have been cast as far as the east into the west, the question you've got to ask yourself is when you get up in the morning, when you function with other people, when you function with your spouse, when you look at your coworkers, do you have that confidence? Because that is the confidence that Jesus died to give you and he wants you to have. You all with me? That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. It's not just something to know. It's something to say. Now, we find ourselves in an interesting place in history because we had one of those weeks this past week where we had one of those epic events that everybody's talking about, everybody's thinking about. I'm talking about Uvalde, of course. And I'm not going to talk about the school. I'm not going to talk about the violence. I'm not going to talk about the hundreds of things that are on social media. What I want to ask, brothers and sisters, is I want to run the ascension up against Uvalde, and I want to ask the gospel question. Do you know what the gospel question is? This is vital stuff. Let me move it back to the Titanic first and then let me move it forward to Uvalde second. If you're on the deck of the Titanic, right, and the boat's going down, what do you say? You do realize that's a Christian question. You do realize that's a gospel question. You do realize that's a vital question. And can I just point out, it's too late to go back and get the dust off the family Bible. You don't have any time. You, you give what you've got. That's all you have. So what do you say? What do you say? Well, for example, you could say the Lord be with you. You could say Jesus Christ is Lord. You could say see you on the other side. But there are things you can say that are still true, even as bad as that is, right? So here's the gospel question for you, Valde, okay? I drop you into one of those churches, okay? You know, this is the kind of thing that Chris and I think about and keeps us up at night. I mean, supposing we were doing those funerals. Supposing we were with those families. I can't even imagine the unspeakable horror. But if the gospel means anything, it has to mean something even in situations like that. So what do you say? 
And if you're a sentient Christian, you have something to say. And it's critical. It's this. This is a word. It's a powerful word. It's a bounded word. It's not the last word. Jesus Christ has the last word. Even death is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. Jesus Christ is still Lord. And that is exactly what they need to hear. He will make all things new. He will make all wrongs right. He will complete history. How do I know? Because he left once, suddenly, visibly, gloriously. And he's coming back in the same way, suddenly, visibly, and gloriously. So, brothers and sisters, it's not simply being confident. It's being faithful and having words to say to the friends and co-workers and to say Jesus is Lord and to live that every day of your lives. Because the ascension really happened once. And we confess it in the creed every week. And it really matters. In Jesus' name, amen.